Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to City Gallery Wellington. I think you already know that you're here at City Gallery Wellington, but I just thought I'd restate that point. Uh, our very special guest tonight is Mr. Luke Fowler, who's come all the way from Glasgow oh, or Berlin? Glasgow. 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 Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming to uh, share your work with us, Luke. Um, but I thought I, um, in the spirit of the film, would start with the question, uh, so, Luke Fowler, <laughs> uh, people are dying and you're making films. Are you happy with it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, what... When I asked John that, I would—I mean, I—I I didn't put it like like that, <laughs> uh, that bluntly. But um, I was surprised that was his answer. And actually, looking at the film now in reflection, I wonder how disingenuous he was being. <laughs> um, you know, I wonder—I wonder whether he was really sort of struggling with that um, point about because. He, you know, he was making music with AMM at the time. This is John Tilbury. John Tilbury, yeah. yeah. Um, so for, for those of you that don't know, John Tilbury um, was... Uh, he's, he was basically... Um, he's Carge's biographer um, and was also in AMM with, with Cornelius Carge um, and was uh, a sort of important member of the Scratch Orchestra or... A, um, a continuous member of the, the Scratch Orchestra the whole way through, and it's sort of the, the last figure in the film that ends on that the film ends on. So I was surprised. I was surprised about that response. It, it might have been um, a sort of moment of sort of soul searching or reflection, or it might have been, uh, you know. Sort of speaking in the spirit of cardio, you know. I think, I think the thing that John talked about a lot is, you know, this idea of um, sort of the prag a pragmatic existence, you right. know, and um, you know that not being, you know, there being these contradictions, but um, in a sort of Brechtian way, like uh, or a a Maoist way, allowing the contradictions to be, you know... To be evident. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious how someone of your generation encountered Kaju, because you set him up in the film with this line where someone describes him as a god who turned into a devil. Uh, and he, you know, seems to turn from a sort of egalitarian spirit into quite a dogmatic one. Yeah. Uh, and my sense is that people have slowly been rediscovering him, but he didn't really have a fixed place in the culture, if you like, and certainly not in 2006 when you made this movie. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about how you encountered Kaju and his legacy. Um, I think I was... So a lot of my works are, although it's maybe not that evident um, in, in this work, but have a kind of autobiographical element to them and are vehicles for experience for me or vehicles for knowledge and um, I was at the time um, starting to get interested in improvisation and field recordings um, and making my way through the sort of like back catalogue of British experimental music and Cornelius obviously came up as you know the most important sort of figure probably would um, you know he uh, 
trained with Stockhausen. He was Stockhausen's assistant in the in the 60s. And should he have lived, would have been, um, yeah, definitely would have been sort of bigger in the canon than he is. Um, and, and, and now, I suppose, other people take that take that role. Um, but there are actually people that studied with, or studied with Cardio or were affiliates with Cardio, like Brian Eno and Gavin Bryars and um, Michael Parsons, uh, Skempton, people like that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just came to them through, I suppose, you know, uh, it was maybe um, Michael Nyman's book, I think, mm -hmm. the experimental music book. Um, and then just went to the library, Glasgow University Library, had Stockhausen Serves Imperialism and Scratch Music. And there was those sort of two very different books that kind of made me want to go and meet. And I think uh, AMM played a concert in Glasgow um, around the time that I was sort of starting to do the research. And that's Keith Rowe, who features quite prominently in the film as well from AMM, talking... Uh, a lot at the end, and you see him as a younger man in the tent as well. Yeah. 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 Keith um, lives in France and actually uh, refused to be interviewed for the film. Um, but uh, as I've seen to Robert, he then changed his mind uh, after the film was made and did a Q&A in Rotterdam Film Festival when the film was shown there. So, uh, yeah, sort of had to fend questions about how he felt about being sort of scapegoated as the, the Maoist element of the orchestra. How did he feel? I, I was, he was a bit defensive about it, as you'd imagine. <laughs> <laughs> it's curious to me that in your films you're often looking at figures who came to prominence in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, Adi Lang, the psychiatrist. Uh, Jim Wilson, the uh, post-punk musician. Um, uh, Christian Wolf, um, who's subject of a film um, which is showing at the Adam Art Gallery right now. Um, what is it about this particular era, do you think, that excites you, interests you, as I, opposed to, say, the 80s or 90s? You know, why reach back to that time? Well, it's, it's a fertile time for art and politics um, and culture. I think it was a time when things were more up for grabs. Um, there was maybe less uh, sort of commodification of art. Um, there was less of a, a, a kind of onus on you know, artists to um, mind, sort of turn what they were doing into a sort of marketable product. Um, you know, certainly there was far more independence. If you look at uh, filmmakers from the sort of London Filmmakers Co-op or the LMC, the London's Musicians Collective, you know, these figures managed to make, you know, live outside of, you know, live and work outside of um, the commercial arts scene or commercial music scene. And so, yeah, that, that kind of, uh, yeah, I think bears fruit in, in some of the sort of organic experimentation that went on at the time. Um, it's just, yeah, it's a very different time from now. It's, I think it's harder for millennials than it, even, than it 
was for my generation, you know, growing up in the 90s. I think we still had the dole, which was like a kind of liberating thing, you know, that you could, I mean, okay, like new labour started to kind of harness it um, and, and co-opt it with New Deal for musicians and things like that, but uh, millennials are kind of fucked. <laughs> it strikes me also that <clears throat> a lot of these figures, they're kind of uh, mystics in a way, or they operate initially from a position of like maybe extreme rationality and try and move towards mysticism, for example. You know, they might be um, people working in an academic context who try and make computer software that can make music independent of the composer. Or then the, um, Cornelius Cargio is the yeah. opposite. He starts off far more open and experiential and then becomes quite rigid in his thinking. Is that perhaps something you're looking for, that sense of, of mysticism? Yeah, or perhaps um, before things sort of cohere and um, uh, become standardised. And uh, so, so I'm, I'm interested in, in that moment. Um, yeah, I think when, with, as you say, with the sort of invention of, of, of a new form of music, a new f- form of um, technology, and um, it's a kind of liberatory moment, you know, where people are working out what the possibilities are. Pre-internet as well. Yeah, yeah. And then kind of often what happens is that those possibilities become, uh, again, they become sort of um, marketed and, and commodified. You know, someone uh, makes things sort of like simple and makes a product out of it and... Um, yeah, that then the the potential of that thing, um, that idea, is lost then, or it changes into something that's more instrumentalised. So, um, yeah, this the scratch orchestra I think was an incredibly liberatory moment in uh, British culture, where Cornelius and other people were trying to rethink what music could, making could be, what concert hall music making could be, you know, what serious music could be, um, democratisation of music. And all right, that um, has happened to a degree that's been ushered in by sort of technology. Um, but it's, you know, I still notice that there's the gatekeepers of the avant-garde and there's kind of amateurs or non-musicians and there's you know not that much of a porous sort of um, you know divide between the two you know porous barrier between the two that um, <clears throat> reminds me of another film you made called The Way Out about a musician who ostensibly goes by the name of El Vogue but um, could also potentially be going by the name of Gus Coma, Zentos Bentos uh, Amos. Zintos Freibentos. Zintos Freibentos, yes, apologies. Yeah. Uh, or potentially even Jim Welton, who knows. Um, so this is essentially one artist who adopted several different identities from which to release music on their own record label. And they you know, don't do interviews. There's no pictures of this person. No. So no. you made a film with this person. Why does this person <laughs> then want to engage with you to make a film when they've avoided so much representation in the past? I think it's like any um, documentary filmmaker is that 
you have to, and I don't really consider myself a documentary filmmaker, but I think there's a lot in, kind of in common with uh, what I do in documentary. Um, but, you know, that there's a gaining of trust between you and your subject. Um, I was recently talking to Matt Wolfe about this, who made the film about Arthur Russell, and he was saying, you know, I never take no as an answer. You know, the first no is you know as a no, and then that def that means kind of I can ask again, and you know, there's a second no, and that's still not really a no. That's maybe, and then there's a third no, and you know, so yeah, it's about kind of persuasion, gentle persuasion, and. Um, I think in that film he tells you to fuck off when he says, I don't even know why I'm doing this or something like that. And yeah, is that actually... Yeah, that's an actor. But that, uh -huh. um, <laughs> that did actually happen, kind of, sort of a bit dramatised. But uh, he'd had root canal surgery and then we went to film the next day and he, he was pretty pissed off. He kind of wished that he, he... Yeah, I think he wished that we'd gone away. You mentioned the word documentary. It seems that aspects, the formal aspects of what you do in a way seem to indicate to me a distrust of documentary to some extent. Um, we see the person who is speaking but we don't actually see them. It's not synced picture and sound necessarily. Mm. Um, we see the music playing but we don't actually or we see people playing the music in the scratch orchestra but we don't actually hear the actual location sound. Could you talk a little bit about your relationship to documentary and why you would employ those sorts of strategies? Well, <clears throat> I mean, a lot of it's unconscious. Um, this, I think, I think that I don't know. I'd be interested to hear sort of what you and the audience think. But I mean, that that is probably one of the straightest films that I've made. Um, and I kind of see the film as a bit of a sort of apprenticeship uh -huh. uh, in film making and also in uh, music making. You know, it was you know, I wasn't kind of uh, you know, yeah, I was, I was active in bands at the time, but I wasn't. I was a bit of a sort of musical innocent, which is you know uh, what Cardi talks about as being one of the. Um, sorts of people that he was trying to attract to the Scratch Orchestra, you know, someone that kind of maybe came from a visual art background but was um, interested in music and um, but also interested in ideas and, and things like that. So, yeah, I, I think this is it, it's, it's pretty much a documentary, really, um, but made by somebody that doesn't really know how to make a documentary. <laughs> Um, or made by an artist. Um, I, I, you know, I think I think the um, when I think about documentary, I think about the potential that it had, you know, at the start, and then I think something kind of it, it lost its way, or it became uh, commodified and sort of um, codified in um, in such a way that it really lost its a lot. Of it's sort of revolutionary potential, and and it, and so yeah, I'm trying to rethink documentary um, and question it, uh, its validity as well, and sort of question its modes um, 
and its um, its methodologies. Is there a slight sort of um, questioning of people's memories as well? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I use the interview in, uh, in that film, and then I kind of became more wary of using oral history in films because of a number of reasons, but um, mainly the kind of way that um, memory's faulty and uh, the, the way that we sort of regurgitate memories. And the same story. Yeah, 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 stories over and over again. And, and so, yeah, uh, I've sort of um, gone off using... Uh, interviews I, I employed them again the next time I used the interviews in a film was maybe about six years later it was this film called To the Editor of Amateur Photographer and that was again maybe f- for the same reason that I used the interviews in this film was that there was such a, a scarcity of material that um, it seemed kind of uh, Charlish, not to you know, <laughs> it, it seemed perverse not to use um, the lived experience of the woman that had been in the pavilion, that had worked in the pavilion, which was this feminist photography collective, especially as they were still living. So that there becomes like this sort of historical function of the films as well to document um, these people's voices and experiences while they're still here. I'm curious, there's something I noticed about the two other films which are at the Adam, and I think which also occurs in at least one of your other movies as well, and that is that you're shown in the movie in reflection with the camera recording the image. Yeah. Is that a, that seems like a conscious decision to put yourself into the movie? Could you talk a little bit about that gesture? Yeah, um, I think sort of early on, I sort of remember watching... Sort of things like Arena and BBC documentaries and, and Channel 4 documentaries and, and quite often they'd never, they wouldn't have a director at the end, it would be a producer and it's this idea of um, films being made by a, a film unit you yeah. know, or a, a production company and there being no author and I just thought that was sort of bollocks really um, you know because there's there's an authorship to the film. The films are clearly an interpretation, um, you know, one person's interpretation. Um, they're not collective films. Uh, so, 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 yeah, from from early, yeah, very early on, I wanted to, to point, point to the fact that these are kind of authored and they're um, uh, partial accounts, you know, pointing to the fact that they're not, you know, a comp- and I'm not trying to make a sort of comprehensive documentary about the Scratch Orchestra or about Keneally's Cardio. It's just one person. It's like, an, you know, my essay, my, my little endeavour, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned uh, the Photography Collective just then. I was curious why, as a filmmaker, you've made so many films about musicians, but, you know, at the same time, as the Scratch Orchestra was operating in London, you had the London Filmmakers Collective. You had real radicals like Peter Goodall, Malcolm McGrice. Mm-hmm. Um, we have attempted to um, look more at the filmmaking environment of that time. 
I mean, structural film's been a big influence on what I've done um, on, on, on my films um, since I've sort of started seeing Wavelength and, and uh, Peter Goodall and William Raban and um, but I suppose like William I was interested in um, yeah so I felt like structural film maybe came to an end or reached an impasse that uh, it seemed sort of perverse to resurrect it in the noughties Where's in the way that some people did um, and, and sorry. Well, whereas the subject you're dealing with still seemed to you to have a kind of revolutionary potential, it's very potent in the present day. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm not really a formalist. I'm, I'm sort of you know it's my background that uh, uh, the academic background of of research and you know the theatre and uh, sociology that sort of. Uh, I, I suppose I can't. I can't just escape. I can't escape. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm bound to that. Okay. Last question from me before we um, throw it open to the audience. Uh, there's a quote at the end from Keith Rowe. We've got the material. It's the context we've got to find, which seems to be the eternal bugbear of the avant-garde. <laughs> um, I mean, what's the context that's best for your films? Do you think? I, I think it's about the spectator, really, um, and the the quality of the spectator. And um, what do you I, mean by the quality of the spectator? The quality of of I think well I think there's two. The, the, there's an interstice between um, the screening conditions and um, the spectatorship. You know that how the spectator. Uh, they're they're uh, will to be engaged in the work, and their openness to be engaged in the work. And I think if, an, um, if the spectator is distracted, if the, if the audience is not present with the work, they're not willing to be engaged with it, uh, then they're not going to get much out of it. And that's kind of, I think, one of the battles of showing, the major battle of showing films like this in a gallery is that you have the distracted rambling spectator there's not a social contract to sit from the start to the to the end and watch a film the whole way through so when we were shown these films you know in 2006 um it was a long it, it was a big ask to get a spectator to sit in a gallery for 45 minutes um especially if the screening conditions weren't good. Mm. Um, you know, un- uncomfortable seats and things like that and uh, bad, bad acoustics. But I think we've come a long way and I think spectators, gallery sort of visitors are more conditioned to sitting for a longer time. Um, I was in a show at Raven Row curated by Dan Kidner called The Inoperative Community and I think there was something like 60 hours of film <laughs> that you could potentially watch, including screenings. And um, for me, that was one of the most successful film uh, shows that dealt with the moving image in a gallery because it had, again, it, it didn't, 
It wasn't like a kind of art silo where only a few figures have um, been sort of accepted into the art gallery, you know, uh, from the experimental film world or from the documentary film world. It was really like completely, um, you know, far-sighted in, in, in having this like really wide uh, cross-section of filmmakers and artists in the, in, in the show. And it had this schedule where you could see what, what was going to happen and changed on different days and weeks. And, you know, you've really got to sort of applaud someone like Dan and Raven Rowe for doing that. But if, you know, you're talking about millennials uh-huh. in their position right now, how do you get this work in front of them to maybe, you know, spark that sense of inquiry about radical potential of the past? See, I, I don't think the problem is with millennials. I think it's with um, bureaucrats because it's... Bureaucrats and number crunchers that um, are preventing us from seeing the content, that preventing anyone, you know, millennials or, or whoever, you know, from seeing content. It's them that are uh, patronising uh, us and telling millennials and everyone what our attention span is. Um, so, you know, oh, you know, it has to. Has to, you have to be able to watch it on an iPhone and it has to last five minutes and you know if you don't get the audience's attention in a minute then they're going to turn over and it's like you've got to remember that they're going to be checking their email at the same time as watching your film and I'm like fuck off you know <laughs> no no um, you know if you listen to those kind of people I mean and, and sadly these are the people that kind of are in positions of power and are dictating you know commissions and and uh, yeah, they're part of the administration. On that sombre note, administration like of decay. <laughs> administration of decay. Well, thank you very much, Luke, uh, for your time tonight. Thanks for bringing your film and your work at the Adam as well. Um, I encourage everyone Thanks, to come Mark. along. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Luke, again, and good night. Thank you.